0: Well, I, I hope that the topic I have today is not the last one you really want to talk about. Uh, it's the end of the Roman year, 2016, and we are just shy of three weeks away from the Trump era. Uh, Donald Trump, Mr. Donald Trump, about to be the president of the United States of America. You know, how did Mr. Trump get elected? I am not going to uh, pretend to be able to do a lot of deep political analysis here from the and i always look to men like dr meredith uh mr ames they have a lot more wisdom behind them and they they take a look at scenarios and and actually come up with things that you never would have thought of but then you see it happening you know right in front of you i do know it was fascinating when we came home my uh my family and i it was election night and i'd been keeping track of some websites one of my favorite is 538.com uh with his fellow mr silver he tends to uh to analyze the polls and bring them in and try to come up with realistic odds of how each uh candidate might do. And he got a lot of flack before the election because he's a fairly liberal fellow like so many people in various media services are and uh he got a lot of flack because he gave uh, Mr. Trump about 30% odds of winning. Instead of just zero, because everyone else was saying there's no way this could happen. This is a joke. It's going to be the biggest landslide ever. And he dared to look at the polls and actually say that Donald Trump had 30% chance of winning. And he just defended himself and said, look, yeah, I'm not saying it's likely. I'm just saying there is a real possibility that it's going to happen. It's not it's a low probability but it could happen. Well we had come back from um, some particular event, I can't recall what it was, but we came in and and the election was on. Uh, NBC was broadcasting live actually off of YouTube. So we, we put that on We're watching the live feed from NBC. And he was doing really well. Uh, he was really doing pretty good. And I said, oh, open up that website, open up five thirty eight, because he will actually update over the course of the evening the percentages. To see, you know, how's it getting. And sure enough, he had Donald Trump at a 49% chance of winning now. Uh, and Mrs. Clinton at a 51%. And it would flicker, et cetera. And it was just high drama. And so the kids and I my wife said, yeah, forget this. I am going to bed. This is, a, I'll wake up and find out who it was. But I wanted to know. I wanted to know so bad. So I say the boys and I were all excited. I, I don't know if they were as excited as I was. No, David fell asleep on the couch pretty quickly. Um, but the rest of them were. It was really... Uh, it was like a soap opera, but knowing that the results, you've got to live with the people at the end of this story. You know, these people will be on your television screens for the rest of the year uh, and making decisions that affect your lives. Uh, so it was uh, fascinating to watch as increasingly it just went in that direction. I started checking the live Twitter feeds from New York Times and some of the most despondent uh, Twitter posts I've ever seen in my life. Uh, just people couldn't believe what was going on. As for why it did happen, why it came out that way, as we will discuss a little bit in the sermon today, God has a plan God is working something out. And we tend to lose sight of that sometimes because our passions get the best of us. Uh, but we'll talk about that a little bit in the sermon. But one of the best summaries, one of the best analyses I saw was on Twitter uh, where things have to be concise. You've only got about 140 characters. You've got to make it count. And this one uh, woman who is a uh, uh, just uh, one of these commentators, one of these political commentators you'll see every once in a while, She wrote in just one line as it looked like Mr. Trump was going to win. And her summary was, America decided the experimental drug was worth the side effects. And I thought that is really pretty insightful because this was a gamble, really. I mean, Mr. Trump, to be honest, there's a lot of ways who really knew necessarily what he would stand for. He wanted to get elected. Everybody knew that. But it, beyond that, he was one of the most uh, inexperienced politically candidates ever. Uh, he's someone that the media tended to make fun of and a lot of us would make fun of. You know, you're fired, you know, and all that kind of stuff. He's a reality TV show star. At the same time, he's had a great deal of success, put a lot of, in the business world. He was a real wild card. And in her summary, it was almost like the, America had concluded our sickness is so bad that America's been offered an experimental drug that doctors say may do the trick or may make things so much worse. And they said, yeah, we're going for it. You know, we're going for that. I thought it was an interesting analysis from that perspective. But it's not just America. Uh, Other countries are going through something very similar. Uh, You look at the Brexit vote. Uh, There's a a reason that uh, Nigel Farage is good... Buddies with Mr. Donald Trump, they see a kindred spirit in terms of what they're trying to do with their nations and what, they, uh, what they're looking at. You look in France at uh, Marie Le Pen. Uh, you even look in the Netherlands at Yurt Wilders. There's this, The Economist had a, had a really good article or a good cover about that, The New Nationalism, and it took a famous painting of American patriots in the in the Revolutionary War but instead, put the faces of all these individuals, uh, Yurt Wilders and all the rest, as if there's this new spirit in the world uh, that we see unfolding. It's not just the United States, but people are used to looking at the United States and thinking of it as sort of the sane one of the bunch, when really we seem to be just as interested in rolling the dice, uh, apparently as a people trying to make things different. Why is it important? It's easy to ignore it all and just say, well, God's in charge. But it is important because it is rising in society. There's an increased passion on people's parts, recognizing the world is falling apart. Things are happening that shouldn't happen. This isn't the way it's supposed to go. And yet no one can agree on which way it ought to go. And unless you do have God in your life, there's many times my wife and I have talked to each other and said, the only reason I can stay sane right now is knowing that God is in charge is that God reigns supreme, and I have that as an anchor. But the rest of the world doesn't have that as an anchor. And this is their solution, to go to the polls, to to try to be involved. And as the world continues to get worse and worse, as Dr. Meredith has highlighted from Scripture, we all know it's going to be that way. We know it's going to happen. Then the passions are only going to get deeper. The passions are only going to get stronger. And the Trump era, I I thought I I didn't mean to be snarky calling it the Trump era. The Economist in November actually titled that. After he won, they said, well, welcome to the Trump era. You know, it's a symbolic of the great changes going on in the world. And as the people around us continue to get more passionate, how do we respond? How do we live our lives and communicate with others and post on Facebook? Uh, during the trump era we need to step back a bit we need to make sure we're grounded in scripture and that's my goal today that's what i want to do i want us to step back and remind ourselves of the biblical principles that universally apply at any time that we'll need to remind ourselves during the days ahead uh, the title today is biblical principles for the trump era biblical principles for the trump era i'm so tempted to try to do an impersonation the sermon's going to be huge it's going to be huge but i'm not i'm not going to i'm not going to do that it's very tempting now before we get started on some of these principles uh let's take note of something because i i'm not trying to say we should be passionless robots because sometimes that's how we feel we just step back and it doesn't make a difference so we it doesn't affect us in any way Are we wrong for caring? Are we wrong for seeing the way society is going, seeing these political decisions and having some concern about it? Was it wrong for uh, the boys and I, for instance, to be impassioned that night and to turn on the television to see what's going to happen? Not at all. Uh, Turn to Ezekiel chapter nine, if you would, the prophet Ezekiel. And there's this fascinating vision, a bit of an insight We certainly won't take the time to read the whole of the vision, but it really is fascinating. Essentially, Ezekiel sees a vision of God leaving the temple. Uh, He is abandoning Judah to their fate. Uh, What they have essentially chosen for themselves. And it's seen in vision as, as, as the glory is just leaving in stages. And there's this portion here, we'll start in verse one of Ezekiel nine. We read here speaking, uh, Ezekiel speaking of God, it says, Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate. He's Speaking with respect to being in the temple, six men came from the direction of the upper gate which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man was among them, sorry, one man among them was clothed with linen and had a rider's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. So you have these men show up, these six men, again he's seeing in vision these beings, and they've got a weapon, they've got a battle axe. Uh, They're clearly about to take care of business. But there's one individual who's different. And he's got a writer's inkhorn. He's ready to do some writing of some sort. So we continue in verse 3. It says, Now the glory of God, uh, sorry, the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Eternal said to him, Go throughout the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of all the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. There were people passionate about what they saw their country and their people going through. But then verse 5, he says, To the others, he said in my hearing, Go after him through the city and kill Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. Do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. I've always thought that was a chilling statement. That when it comes down to beginning the begin, if you will, it starts. He says you start here. You start at my house and you work out from there. Like judgment, you know, starts, right, in God's house and kind of moves out from there. Judgment on the world starts with Israel and moves out from there. But those who had the mark on them were protected from that. And who had the mark? It was really clear. It was those who sigh and cry for the abominations that they saw in the land, seeing their nation go through these things, choose the things they were choosing, the horrors and the paganism and abandoning the god of their fathers he said you reward that you note those people they were sighing and crying it wasn't an academic discussion well, i don't know phil what do you think well i think all these pagan idols are a really bad idea uh i just don't think god's gonna let us get away with that <laughs> well maybe we'll see won't we yes we'll see uh it wasn't like some commentary." These were people struck to their core. It moved them to see their brothers and sisters bowing down before Baal, uh, sacrificing their children. And it struck them at their heart and they were impassioned about it. And God rewarded that passion. He said, those who sigh and cry, you note them because they think like I do. The point of this sermon is not that we should not be impassioned about but what we see. We should care very much. In fact, uh, we pattern ourselves after our Savior when we do so. Uh, Turn to Matthew 23, if you would. Matthew 23. And we'll see the words of Jesus Christ. Matthew 23. In Matthew 23 and verse... 37 after discussing what is coming upon the land jesus christ looks out in verse 37 and just speaks from his heart i've mentioned before the word oh is not a normal word we use in just everyday language it's it's a word of emotion and deep feeling and jesus christ in verse 37 says oh jerusalem 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 the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Your house is going to be desolated. I just wish you had let me. Protect you like I wanted to. Verse 39, For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus Christ cared. He would have been one of those in Ezekiel who sighed and cried over what he saw the land committing and then what they were doing. Nothing in the sermon today that I'm trying to give is meant to communicate, don't care. Uh, don't be impassioned. Absolutely, your Savior cares. God has always honored a passion and a love for your people when you see what they're going through but we have to be careful what we care about more precisely. And sometimes we do get caught up caring about the wrong things. And when we do care, we do have to know how do we express that care and concern and how do we focus it and what do we do about it. Because we may care about those things and what we see amongst our people we're called to a different standard and a different job. And we have to always have that in mind. So I just want to get that out of the way, because I'm not trying to say we should be robots and dispassionate. God is amazingly passionate as a being, and we are modeled after him uh, to have feelings. He's not the great Vulcan in the sky. Uh, He has great depths of emotion. Uh, But what do we do with it? What do we do with it? And that's what's important. So I think these principles will be helpful in helping us to understand what to do with it and what not to do with it. All right, the first principle I'd like to get across that we have to keep in mind, I say for the Trump era, but you know, if you go back long enough ago, it might have been the, uh, uh, well, not too long ago. We could say it now for the uh, the Obama era. Uh, you could say for the Bush era. Uh, you could say the Clinton era or the uh, the Carter era. Or I guess the other Bush era. I guess we could say that twice. Um, You know, in any political season where passions are high, these principles should apply. And the first of these that I want to highlight is this. We cannot lose sight of this. And people do. People do. And I, I will admit, there's times when I have. This principle, God appoints rulers for his purposes. God appoints rulers for his purposes. And I don't know if you really agree with that. And a lot of us sometimes we feel, yes, I totally agree. I agree with that. God clearly, he's appointed every president of the United States, except for, you know, Jimmy Carter, because nobody, you know, I mean, there's no way that God wanted Jimmy Carter uh, to be president. And I guarantee you he did. I guarantee you he wanted uh, Mr. Carter. He wanted Mr. Reagan there. He wanted each of their leader, these leaders for their time and purpose uh, in fulfilling his plan. Let's, turn, let's remind ourselves. Never think something is so basic that you don't need reminding of it. We have enough friends and family in our history who came to the conclusion that some things were so basic that we didn't need reminding of them. And then before you know it, it was gone from them. And they didn't have it anymore. Uh, let's turn to Daniel chapter 4. In Daniel, we have Nebuchadnezzar having a dream and we're certainly not going to read the entire dream it's not necessary to understand the entirety of the dream it was god communicating with this pagan heathen king who was a leader of some of god's own people for a time because they were under subjection under him and he speaks of the dream and in Daniel chapter 4, there's only one particular part that we really need to grab. Daniel chapter 4. And after describing what's going to happen and speaking of these uh, these holy ones uh, that were speaking to him in the dream, one of the things that they say is in verse 17. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 17. They say here, this decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowest of men. Again, this decision, the decision that was being displayed in this dream and what was going to happen, was by decree of the watchers, in the sense by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know, that's us, that the living, those alive right now may know That it's the most high who rules in the kingdom of men. He is the one who is ultimately reigning. God reigns supreme. And that he appoints these people. He gives it to whomever he wants. Even the lowest of men. Just because someone is high in power doesn't mean they're a great person. Authority doesn't equal being a good person. But it does mean for a time and a season, God has deigned for that to be so for some reason. We have to believe this. this, The purpose of this uh, sermon is not to explain why we don't vote, uh, why we don't get out there and campaign and really uh, try to get one person elected or another. That would be a great, actually, uh, message. But at the heart of it is this principle. God reserves for himself the setting up of rulers. And for us to take that upon ourselves, it's not our place. It's not our place. Uh, Turn as well to Isaiah 46. Isaiah and chapter 46. God says that He appoints whomever He will to fulfill His purposes. We see that reflected as well in Isaiah 46. In Isaiah chapter 46, we'll jump down to verse 8. Where God says, remember this and show yourselves men. Mere men is what he's saying here. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. That is, at the beginning of things, I alone can declare what the end is going to be. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east. A man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. God has the power to bring someone from a far country, if that's what's needed, to fulfill his purposes. He has the power to take a peanut farmer from Georgia and make him president of the United States. He has the power to take a a real estate developer uh, and wealthy fella. From reality television and make him president of the United States. He has a plan he is working. Now let's understand, is that plan always uh, something positive and increase righteousness? We know he hopes for that. He hopes for those choices. And there's no reason America can't step into a new dawn of righteousness. I hope it is not wrong to say I don't see that on the horizon, but we can still be on our knees and pray for our leaders that it would be so. But let me give you a very specific example. When I was an actuary uh, during the Clinton administration, I think I can safely say that there are many in the world that don't think of Mr. Bill Clinton as the most moral of our presidents. No elaboration will be given. Uh, But regardless, you know, perhaps the lowest of men. And one of the things that really began to be pushed much more solidly in President Clinton's administration was expansion of rights for homosexuals. You began to see many more uh, diversity uh, uh, training and such, but not just for racial diversity, but what they began to call sexual orientation. It used to be sexual preference, but this is the time it began to be called sexual orientation because they wanted to communicate a sense that these people have no choice. They somehow just have to do it 's their orientation, not a preference. And so as a result, you saw these things really gear up uh, for just accepting all sorts of differences that normally, because you had controversies, people saying, I don't know if I want to take my child to a daycare if the people taking care of that, of my children, are homosexual or, or have some of these other uh, uh, sinful problems. And so you had this, and you think, well, surely God doesn't want that. God doesn't want the country uh, to go into accepting more and more sin. And don't get me wrong, I agree. I agree, God wants us to launch towards righteousness, not uh, sink towards unrighteousness. And yet I remember as an actuary sitting in my cubicle, a little Dilbert cubicle, and my manager coming, a wonderful gal, I I, I really appreciated her in my life. She was very protective uh, of me in terms of, of my church, my faith. And she brought our diversity pamphlet that had just been upgraded for some of these things, and I won't do her accent. She was a wonderful French-Canadian gal, and I would just butcher it and offend all of our uh, Canadians, uh, French-Canadians listening. But she said, Wally, I want you to understand. If anyone here in management gives you a problem over your holy days and over the Sabbath, this policy should protect you. This policy should give you some room to be able to explain that they shouldn't be able to do that. And it was kind of a wake-up call because here it was—I was potentially going to be protected in some way by a policy that wasn't being pressed because President Clinton cared about Sabbath keepers or cared about that we what got to the feast or not. But frankly, being driven by homosexuals and, and and other kinds of perversions, and it did make me think: Is it possible for God to sometimes use the sinful orientation of people and their desires? to work good in the lives of his people in some way as society deteriorates. And it was a reminder to me that if I had gone to the polls, or gone to the actual voting booths, and voted against President Clinton, is it possible I would have been voting against something that he knows society is going downhill anyway, where he would have used that man to accomplish something? The fact is, God has a purpose on earth. It is not ours to get behind some candidate politically, And to try to get that person in office when God might say, you know what? You're my kid. That is my job. Sit down. Sit down. And let me do my job and run the world. God appoints leaders according to his purposes. And we have to remember that. We have to remember that. It's a very important principle. It's part of why we don't vote. There's other reasons as well. And we'll actually see some of those in this. But God takes on the authority to raise up rulers and to set them down. Uh, And it's not ours. Secondly, another principle. God commands us to respond to our leaders and to respect our leaders as if they are his servants. As in many ways they are. I apologize, that's a long one. Some of you are thinking, I didn't get all that. and I'm really trying to write all of them down. Um, Let me read it again. God commands us to respond to our leaders and to respect our leaders as if they are his servants as in many ways they are. Now, there is going to be a balancing to this, so don't worry. There is going to be a balancing to this, but we have to have this principle in mind first, because this is the one that's easier for our mind to cast off. All of us, I, I, I know a lot of you personally, and a lot of us are ready to go against the government for the sake of God. We're almost chomping at the bit. Oh, I can't wait! You know, I don't have to obey that. I want to obey God. But what is our default position? Our default position should be. Pretty clear. If you turn to Romans chapter thirteen, now a lot of the verses I'm reading today, they shouldn't be a shock to a lot of you. They might, they might be to some of you, and that's certainly fine. Uh, There's times I I hear shocking verses as well. I didn't expect to hear, but this one's a pretty common one in the context of dealing with our governments and our leaders. But I just do want to put a warning out there. If you're sitting there thinking, oh man, he's going to go to Romans thirteen on this. He's going to go all Romans thirteen on me." You know, well, you have your witness then, don't you? You know, you know where it is. You know what this passage says. Uh, and you don't need me to read it, but I'm going to read it anyway. Romans chapter 13, and we'll start in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, before I continue reading, and I will continue reading, let's remind ourselves under what authority in terms of political government did Paul live? The Roman government. If you think things can get bad politically and you don't think they can get worse, you haven't read the history of the Roman government and the Roman emperors. Right? It was debauched. It was terrible. Uh, you know, you read Tacitus and others and they're, you know, killing their mothers because they're political rivals, you know, and all these other things. This is a terrible inhuman form of government in fact if tradition has any accurate say to it it is the very government that would eventually execute paul this is the government that history and tradition says beheaded paul uh for his work in the gospel and so i you be the judge well hopefully all of us will be there and get to talk to him in the kingdom of god and say Hey, Paul, you know, you know, they cut your head off, right? You may not remember that, but right up to the moment they did. Do you regret Romans 13? Do You kind of want to have a take back. It's like, oh, no, let's totally erase that. You know, God, can we take Romans 13 out of the Bible? I didn't know they were going to cut my head off. Um, is that possible? I don't think so. These words were inspired by God. And Paul meant them then, and he would have meant them just as much. He might have wanted a little more time to live them, uh, but he meant them just as much. We'll continue in verse 2. Paul says, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. If you do evil, be afraid he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Also for conscience sake. We'll come back to that. Verse 6. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, meaning servants. They are God's ministers or servants attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs. Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. If you go back to verse 5, I highlighted it a moment ago. He says, you have to do this. You must do this. Why does he say? He gives two reasons. One, he's elaborated more earlier on, which was about wrath. You know, if you decide not to pay taxes, it's like, well, I don't think the Constitution requires me to pay taxes. I've read it pretty carefully. And believe me, I am a scholar, you know, uh, whatever. And so you decide you don't need to pay income tax. The wrath uh, you tell the government, I'm not going to give you my money and you can believe there's going to be some wrath eventually. Uh, no, I know this guy that got away with it for 20 years. He's in jail now, but you know, for 20 years, you know, I mean, he did really good. Yeah, the wrath will come on you. Uh, but Paul goes further than that. And he goes in a way that we should care about. Again, verse six, he says, because of this, sorry, uh, verse five, therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft the scriptures tell us and there is a spirit involved in trying to go against the authorities that have been placed over you that it affects us in ways paul is saying for the sake of your conscience do not do this do not build this idol in your heart do not build this idol of the opposite of the government whatever it happens to be you will affect yourself And that is exactly what God is trying to shape in you. Don't shape it in this way. Not just for fear of the government, but for the sake of what God is doing in you. Yield. Be a good citizen in that way. Now, that's not our only citizenship. We'll talk about that later. But he's talking about treating those in authority as if God placed them there. Because God placed them there. Now, again, talk about balancing. Let's go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 5. Now, I do feel some of you are thinking, all right, finally he's going to Acts chapter 5. I've been waiting for that one. Uh, And if you don't know why, you're about to find out. Because here we have in Acts chapter 5, the apostles were resisting the authorities. And they were being called to the carpet in Acts chapter 5. Because they were preaching a message the authorities did not want preached. In Acts chapter 5, we see this interaction between the uh, the Jewish leaders of the time and the apostles. Acts chapter 5 and verse 28. Uh, actually, we'll start in verse 27. We read here, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, verse 28, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you fill Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Now this this council had power. They had authority. They had right authority in terms of right as in it was legal. It was uh, actually real authority. And essentially, even though they weren't the ones that actually in a sense crucified Jesus Christ, they had their role to play, but the Romans had that extra authority. You have the apostles facing those We're kind of a part of that, you know, facing down the very ones who took their leader, Jesus Christ, and now well, he's not dead, you know, but had him executed and now they're facing them. And what is their response? It's a response I hope encourages all of us because we will have our times, we'll have our times. They respond and say in verse 29, it says, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. It's a simple answer. We do seek to obey men, but whenever that is in conflict with God, we will always obey God instead. And that was their answer to the leaders. They had been told by their own creator standing on this earth before he left them to go to heaven and run the church and said, you preach this to the world. Judea, Samaria, the world, you preach this everywhere. And they said, we don't have a choice. You can pass whatever laws, you can make whatever threats, we have to obey God instead of men. There was a direct conflict, and so they sided with God, and so should we all. We will always obey. But it's very easy in our minds to think that, well, you know, I'm, I'm just speaking the truth. I'm saying what God would have me say, when it isn't necessarily what God would have us say. We all like to think, well, no, I'm disobeying man because I'm obeying God, when God says, I, I didn't. I didn't tell you to do that. Get your taxes in. What are you doing? You know, uh, I didn't tell you to do that. We can't imagine God commanding us things we shouldn't. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 23. Remember, we're talking about responding to our leaders and respecting them as if they are God's servants. This is one of my favorite passages. And let me qualify it here at the beginning. A lot of us would like to be John the Baptist. You know, when, when John the Baptist has this powerful ministry in Judea, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees come, uh, and you can read about it in Matthew chapter 3. We're not turning there for the sake of time. And he sees them there. He sees the leaders that are part of the problem and not the solution. What does he say? You brood of vipers. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And we think... Oh, just send me to the White House. I'm ready. You know, just give me there. I just want to go in there yelling you're a bunch of brood of vipers. Um, you know, John the Baptist also did get his head cut off, and God called him to preach about sin to those people. You know what he wasn't called, and I'm going to get a little bit ahead of myself, but he says, you brood of vipers. And your crazy health care plan. And what you're doing to IRAs today. And it's hard for my grandmother to retire. Uh, he It wasn't that. It was about sin. It was about turning your own people away from God. In the name of following him. Uh, and actually in his name. God called him for that. It's easy to imagine ourselves that we are in John the Baptist place. And not think of this example. This is one that humbles me a bit. Uh, Acts chapter 23, and starting in verse 1, guess what? Paul's in trouble again. He was very good at this. You know, if there was an Olympic sport at getting into trouble, Paul would have the gold every time. Uh, He was very good at getting into trouble. Not for the sake of getting into trouble, just doing things that didn't make people happy. So Acts chapter 23 and verse 1, it says, Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, and he's, he's before the Jewish leadership at this time, And he says, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. You know, he's trying to explain, I've done nothing wrong. I'm good with my conscience. The things I'm doing are right and they're lawful. And as he's beginning to make his defense, we see in verse 2, it says, the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. You know, we think we got it rough. he's, He's just making his defense And some guy, he doesn't know who it is, as we'll find out at this point, says, hit him in the face. Smack him in the mouth. And pow! Now, Paul, being Paul, uh, responds in verse 3. And Paul said, Well, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and you do command me to be struck contrary to the law? Paul knew the law. You're not going to outlaw Paul uh, about the law. And he knew this is not how you treat people. This is not what you were supposed to do. So he's calling the Jewish leadership on the law. I mean, that's not constitutional law. It's not Roman law. He's calling them on the very law that they have claimed to be teachers of the people. And then he's told in the next verse, verse four, it says, those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? As in, do you know who it was that told you told me to smack you on the mouth? That told that guy, that is the high priest. He may not have had the shirt saying, hi, I'm high priest. My name's Ananias. But that's the guy. And how does he respond? He's, it doesn't make a difference. All the more the high priest should know that this is the wrong thing to do. He doesn't. In a world where they are not willing to follow God's law, he steps back and does so. We see him in verse 5. Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And he yielded. Now, he was still in the right, and he gets really savvy later. It's a great story. Don't read it now. There's a sermon going on. But it's a good story, though. Go, go read it later. Paul's, Paul's sharp as a tack. Um, But he was in the right. And yet he recognized that God's law about how you treat your leaders isn't somehow suspended just because they have personally done something wrong to you and he says I'm, I'm sorry i didn't know that's who that was how many of us would be so humble in that place and that's the example for us that is the example we're so ready to be offended in fact here's what he didn't say verse five let me read this from a, a bible that hopefully you don't have because it's completely inaccurate uh Verse 5 doesn't say, and then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people unless it's on Facebook, or the meme is really, really funny. doesn't say that. Now, some of you don't know what a meme is. Congratulations, actually. Uh, but you know, some picture with words at the top and bottom. It doesn't say that. It's a standard. And Paul knew better. Paul knew that the only reason his ministry was working at all is because God was behind it, because God was empowering it. And how could he expect God to continue empowering his ministry if he wasn't obeying the one who was sending him? Again, it doesn't mean there isn't a time. We do need to be ready to be spokesmen for God on behalf of sin. But it's not a matter of personal offense. You know, it's interesting. If anybody had an opportunity to be offended, I think in the Bible would be Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, uh, who clearly had people plotting against them, twisting the minds of leaders that were generally at first sympathetic, throwing them into the fire, and then you see them when they come out. And what are they? Well, we talked about this at preteen camp in North Carolina this past year. Uh, They don't come out of the fire and say, what were you thinking? You know, we've been such good, loyal subjects. What's wrong with you? What's going on in your head? You consistently see these people, these bad things. They come out saying things like, oh, king, live forever. Who, you know, just tried to kill me. Uh, They just say they're just, oh, king, live forever. There's this amazing continual respect, even of the heathen kings who were just trying to throw them to the lions or throw them into the fire because they recognized a principle. They recognized a principle. And how wrong would it have been for them to succeed so bravely and be thrown into the fire for not bending to the idol of Nebuchadnezzar and then come out in their own personal offense and bow to the idol of their own heart. And give in to that temptation. And they didn't. It's, it's a little bit difficult for us, at least in America. I know, you know, on the internet, uh, videos are viewed by all sorts of different nationalities. But in America, making fun of our politicians is sport. I mean, you just turn to any uh, late-night channel and people are making mega bucks, just absolutely making fun of every aspect uh, of our leaders that they can. In fact, I remember among people who were disappointed that Mr. Trump was elected uh, were a lot of those very same late-night talk show hosts that were really trying to get him not elected and were actively, in a sense, campaigning on the uh, comedy network and such against him, but at the same time, they got to be thinking, cha-ching, you know, I've got four years of good material, you know, this is going to be fantastic for me. And we live in a country where that kind of respect for someone in authority is just not the norm anymore. This says, uh, was said very well in the sermonette, the norms of this world aren't God's norms. They're not God's norms. God's norms are different. Let's just turn to one more verse on this particular point. Before we move to another turn to 1st Peter chapter 2. 1st Peter chapter 2. We'll start in verse 13. 1st Peter 2 and verse 13. The Apostle Peter trying to encourage his flock to do right, to set the right example. He starts in verse 13 It says, therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. You may not want to. It may not be good for you personally, but for God's sake, not your own. Submit, whether to the king as supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Because it's easy to make excuses. Well, this governor, he's not really even doing exactly what the king wants. I know the king wouldn't want it this way. He's saying, no, on down the line. It's not your place. You're called to something different. He says, verse 15, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bond servants of God. We are in one of the freest nations mankind has ever seen on the planet. I could get behind this lectern and unless I'm saying any kind of terrible threat, I could say the most terrible things if I wanted to. Uh, About our president, or our congressmen or women, I could, I could go on and on. I could talk about how they're they're unattractive looking, or blah blah blah. I could just do a bunch of terrible, terrible things. And you know what? They they'd had they might be irritated, but I'm in you know freedom of speech. I have freedom, and yet I am constrained by this verse that says not using liberty as a cloak for vice. Not using liberty as an opportunity to build in myself a spirit that God is fighting against and trying to turn into something else, rather seeing myself as a bond servant of God. When I post, and by the way, I'm afraid some of you think I've been stalking you on Facebook. If you're feeling particularly guilty about your Facebook habits, I, I, I give you my word, I haven't seen them. I don't, I don't go out to Facebook unless I have to, uh, here and there. Uh, but you know, right? I don't need to know because you know. Um, Am I posting on Facebook as a bond servant of God? Or as an irritated political hack? Servants be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Peter wasn't pretending that all servants are good, that all masters rather are good and peaceful and kind. He's saying, you know what? It's when you submit to the harsh ones, that's when credit really builds for you. That's when God takes notice. It's easy to submit to a nice, kind master. It's easy when your boss is, you know, completely always rational and always looking out for your best interests. But when he's not, or when your president isn't, or your Congress isn't, that's when God takes notice. Any carnal person can respect the authority of someone who deserves respect. It is only miraculous power that gives us the ability to do it when the person in leadership doesn't deserve that. When the person the people have elected is something you really question the sanity of the populace. Not saying I do. Just saying that we're in such an era where those questions are asked. Finally, verse 19: For this is commendable if, because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. This is commendable. All right. It took a long time on that particular principle, but let's do move on to another we do not fight this world's battles it's another point another principle biblical principle in the trump era we do not fight this world's battles turn to philippians chapter three paul tries to make a point we know that paul recognized he was a roman citizen paul recognized that he took advantage of his citizenship even in different times Not so much for personal benefit, but for the benefit of the gospel, as was always on Paul's mind. The benefit of the gospel. And in Philippians chapter 3, he makes an important point. Let's start in verse 17. Philippians 3 and verse 17. He says, Brethren, speaking to you and me, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. They are consumed by earthly concerns. And he doesn't just say they're distracted. He calls them the enemies of the gospel. The enemies of of the gospel. Sorry continuing. So he says who set their mind on earthly things. Enemies of the cross of Christ. He said specifically. Verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven. From which we also eagerly wait for the Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. Will transform our lowly body. That it may be conformed to his glorious body. According to the working by which. He's even able to subdue all things to himself. Our citizenship fundamentally is in heaven. Yes, I am an American citizen. I was born in this country, reared in this country. This is the country of my physical, earthly citizenship. But that citizenship overrides my earthly citizenship in every way that it should and need to, and that's true for all of us. That is the country whose laws we seek to follow above all others. And that is the country whose concerns should drive us more than the others. And so I'm concerned about those battles. You and I, together, we're concerned about those battles, or we should be. What is God's battles? What is he fighting for right now? Not this world's battles and struggles. Uh, we see this reflected in other places. Turn to John chapter 18. In John chapter 18, I, I know I heard this recently. I think it might have been Dr. Winnell's... Uh, bible study i think but in john chapter 18 we have jesus christ on trial before pilate and things aren't going well for jesus but they are going according to god's plan and he makes a point because pilate asked him a series of questions how does jesus jesus says something very important in verse 36 jesus answers pilate In verse 36 of John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. My servants are not going to be fighting in this world to achieve some physical political goal in this life. Now, it's easy to kind of give ourselves permission to ignore what he's saying here. And to say, well, yeah, but that's different. Jesus Christ was supposed to die for mankind. This is a part of God's overarching purpose is that Jesus Christ would be the Messiah uh, and that he was supposed to die. And so, of course, his servants shouldn't fight because they're, they'd be fighting against God's plan. And yet that's not how Jesus Christ anchors his objection to his servants fighting in this world. He anchors it in the fact that his kingdom is not of this world. And that's still true. That's still true whether it's Jesus Christ on trial uh, before Pilate or in today's world when political decisions are being made in the halls of power. My kingdom is not of, if it were, if my kingdom were this world, you bet. My servants would be in there. Because what happens in this world would be vitally important to them and they'd be acting on my direction. But this is not a time for them to have power. Nor a time for them to seize it. That kingdom's coming later. It was not their job to rescue Jesus Christ so he could be enthroned on this earth. It's not our job to pick a candidate and try to get that one in office and rule some kingdom that isn't God's. Jesus Christ said, if my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight. But it's not. Let's jump to another principle. Another principle for the Trump era. Biblical principle. We are to warn the world of sin. Not healthcare issues. Not government investment. Now don't get me wrong, those things do play a role. And in God's church, those things are often being used to weaken the country. And if we see a pattern like that, we're going to say something about it. If we see a financial boondoggle... It might be part of what God is using to bring down the country. You can bet, Dr. Meredith, Mr. Ames, Mr. Weston, you're going to be hearing about that. But why? Because it's attached to what God is doing in the country, not because we just think it's somehow politically unwise. We're to warn the world of sin. Uh, turn to Isaiah 58. We have those here and there. I'm not saying among us necessarily. Who get so upset that we talk about the bad news. You know, especially the good news. We should go around talking about good news. And don't get me wrong, we do talk about good news. There's nothing like hearing about, a uh, on the telecast about what the kingdom's going to be like. Uh, or seeing some talk of how God's law is going to be applied and solve problems. But Jesus Christ himself talked about bad news. He talked about what was coming on in Jerusalem. And we can't ignore the commands of Isaiah 58 and verse 1. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Verse 1, Isaiah 58. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. We can't ignore that. We can't say, ah, oh, you know, don't don't be talking about stuff like that in the TWPs. No one's going to want to come. Ah, oh, you know, okay, I'll cut that right out. I'll cut that verse right out of my Bible. We have to do that. It has to be part of our, it doesn't have to be the whole message. It is the gospel of the coming kingdom of God. It's something beautiful. But this is a part of that also. And we should be doing this. And it does touch on the political movements of our day, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, The transgender movement is an excellent example. I just did a telecast this week in which I talked about it pretty specifically. I hope it makes it to the air. Uh, For example, we can say things that we should. One of the things that strikes me as odd, I don't go into this kind of detail in the telecast, but you look at Dr. Paul McHugh. Not him alone, he's just one of the most uh, outspoken, uh, connected as he is with Johns Hopkins uh, University and such. He has a great megaphone. But when it comes to transgender confusion, it is in the same category as uh, uh, anorexia, nervosa, uh, bulimia. What would our society be doing if we took someone suffering from these body image issues that they look in the mirror. It's typically a young woman, but not always, not always, but a young woman who looks in the mirror. And even though she is skin and bone and continues to get thinner and thinner, all she, and she sees her eyes work. She sees that image in her mirror, but in her mind, she knows she is overweight. She knows that she is obese. And the image that is coming into her mind doesn't change what she thinks she is in her brain. Is it a country that is rational and following God's and his desire to to help people and serve them, to pass laws to say, you know what? If this young woman thinks that she's overweight, then we're going to require all the public school teachers and all the principals and all the counselors to call her fat and to call her overweight because we don't want to disagree with what she says she is in her mind. She's fully convinced. And so it's not our right to disagree. In fact... We're going to require the school lunch at the cafeteria to only give her reduced calorie meals in accordance with her mental image uh, and to give her the strictest of diets because she knows that she is very obese. In fact, if she goes to a counselor to talk about how I, I know people say I look this way and I know I look this way, but I know in my mind, I know in my mind that I'm overweight. We're going to require the counselors to not only agree and say, you know what? You are. If that's what you think you are, you are overweight. In fact, don't worry about talking to me. I won't talk to your parents. The law doesn't let me actually share such counsel with your parents. And then healthcare uh, plans are changed so that the government will pay for uh, a stomach surgery and stapling her stomach and such to help her lose more weight. That would be a society that is abusing that young woman systemically from the top. And to live in a nation where the government is increasingly doing that for these transgender, these poor people that look in the mirror and see something they don't recognize in their mind and they're in confusion and to have increasing laws saying you are not allowed to help that person. You're not allowed to help connect that person back to reality. We'll take away your license. We'll call you a hate group. That is a sinning nation that is abusing its youngest members. We can say that. We should say that. God's church is the pillar and ground bulwark of the truth. And we should be doing those things. But committing ourselves to talking about the spiritual things is both more narrow and more broad than we tend to give it credit for. Uh, it's more broad in the sense that these things are true regardless of party Republican, Democrat, Conservative, Liberal. It doesn't make a difference. Some parties and some political groups give more lip service to these things than other groups, Uh, but sin is not unique to one side of the political aisle. It exists in both places. So in that sense, it's broader, but it's also narrower. When I look at Scripture, I look at the times in which Jesus Christ was walking around on the earth, do I think that he probably talked with his disciples about some of the uh, more political things going on? And do we think that political times back then were any less exciting than now? Oh, man. You know, here it's not, oh, I hear that so-and-so demoted so-and-so at the White House. It's, oh, I hear so-and-so got that guy beheaded, uh, You know, got that cut off. Uh, if anything, they were more dramatic. You think people were possibly upset about Herod's policy concerning uh, building codes and things like that? The Roman government, yes, we think of it as this totalitarian imp- it, it was also a bureaucracy. There were people frustrated at the red tape. They wouldn't call it red tape. They didn't know what tape was. Uh, But they were frustrated as well. Did they talk about those things? I'm sure they did. Did Jesus Christ and his apostles over lunch sometimes just talk about certain policies of uh, the governors in Jerusalem? I I would be shocked if they didn't. What I don't see him is going town to town, fulfilling God's mission in terms of dwelling on what is essentially minutia compared to obeying God. And compared to turning to him. You know, it was pointed out to me once, and I thought it was a very good observation. God can make even the worst of policies work. Now, let me talk just a little bit about Obamacare without taking a position. And I used to not call it Obamacare because I was trying to be respectful of the president. And I thought it was, it was called that as something derogatory. Until he started calling it Obamacare. And I thought, oh, all right. Uh, okay, that it's not You know, it's a signature achievement. He's very proud of it and wants his name attached. That's, that's fine. So you know, let we'll talk about it just briefly. Um, I, I used to be an actuary. I spent years and years handling millions, even billions of dollars, passing through about insurance plans and trying to tell the company whether it's a good plan or not, and going through the data uh, and using all these statistical tools. So I, I'm familiar with that. And from the moment the plan was announced the way it was, that you know there's going to be no no uh, conditions that can get you uh, turned away. Any uh, pre-existing conditions won't make a difference. All those things, and the premiums will be lower. I thought, someone's not an actuary, you know, there's somehow, that's just, that's not the way those things, that's not the way those things work. I knew there was going to have to be something, there were other things in place, maybe they wanted to bring them in later, right? I just knew that something, some something was going to have to be in place. But at the same time, I also know that in a country obeying God, he can make a lot of things work. Let me use my family as an example, I won't pick on any of yours, because I don't live with your family every day. I do live with mine. And... uh, I'm the dad, still, yay. Uh, you know, not that confused. I do know I'm a dad, and I'm a guy. And I'm the dad and I make decisions. And I have made this is gonna be a shocker. You know, sit straight, brace yourselves, I make some bad calls. Uh I don't always make the best decision for my family. There's times I even get onto my kids when they didn't do anything wrong. Ah, Not most recently, though. Those were all worth it. Those were all accurate. But anyway, it happens. We make mistakes. I make a bad call, and my wife has to live with it. Please pray for her, uh, because I don't do that necessarily and frequently. But what I have learned over time, and I know many of you have learned in your own families, is if you're trying to do things right, God can even make some of those boneheaded decisions turn out okay. That God blesses a wife who will support her Goofy husband sometimes who's who's not maybe it's like, honey, really, you know, another boat, you know, one boat's great, you know, uh, you know, that if God if we will do things God's way, he blesses that and makes it work and he can make a husband see the things he should have said. He should have saw when you said it 10 years ago, but in his own time, God can work with a country and policies that are unwise. Let me say this. Let me contrast it. Let's say we had the worst insurance policy in the world as a policy. It's going to be free for everybody. We're not even going to pay doctors. Everyone's going to work pro bono. Uh, and somehow it's all, you know, we think it's all going to work out. But I know it's exaggerating, but I can guarantee you this. If it was a nation that was on its knees every day, every citizen, every leader, seeking their creator and their guide and the one who designed their hearts and souls, God could make that work until they figured out it was unwise. Maybe someone's climbing Mount McKinley and they stick a pick in it and the dirt falls off and it's made of gold. Wow! You know, wow! This is great. Then later they realized ten years down the road, boy, I'm glad we found that mountain of gold. That was a terrible plan. Why did we? Why did we do that? But on the other side of things, we could come up with the seemingly wisest policies ever. That just straight down the line, they obey every sound economic principle we've ever discovered. They involve nothing but wise investments. On paper, it looks amazing. Both parties agree it's almost like a miracle. It must have floated down from heaven in some way because this is the best plan ever. And if that country is turning from God, it won't work. It won't work. Because he says you put him first and he establishes your ways. And it actually brings me to the last point that I'll make, which is that God's ways aren't captured by any political isms isms isn't a word i know it's a suffix uh, but god's approach to life and rulership isn't captured by any political isms socialism capitalism communism none of them work i mean sorry none of them apply to god for the sake of time i'm going to kind of rush through this but let's say you think no because there are people out there say this and it's ridiculous you know god's really a socialist or a capitalist. Well, you can turn to Zechariah and find out in the millennium people will actually own their own vine and fig tree. It's not the government's vine and the government's fig tree. It's personal ownership. If your neighbor is sitting under it, it's because you invited them under your vine and you're under your fig tree. That's uh, Zechariah 3 verse 10. What does Paul say to the Thessalonians? If you don't work? Don't eat. Uh, that's a, uh, that's not necessarily socialism or communism. It's, Pretty capitalistic. At the same time, well, that means God's a capitalist. You know, God and Adam Smith, friends forever. Um, so you need to do your research, Adam Smith. Uh, you know, God's a capitalist. Well, I, third tithe. Third tithe. God says, you know what, 10% every third year in a group of seven, you're actually going to give that to a central authority and they're going to give it to people that need it. Well, God, if you let us decide, I might even give more. He says, feel free and give more, but you're giving 10%. You're still doing that because uh, from a central authority, he says, you're going to do that. You know, don't harvest the corners of your fields. He says, you leave that for the poor. So, well, God, that's not good capitalism. If you let me harvest even the corners, then I know I can make a better margin, and I can earn more, and I can probably give more than that. He says, yeah, let's do it my way and see how that works out. God's way isn't capt- uh, captured by any of these isms. And therefore, we shouldn't waste our time associating with any one of them. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, the last uh, passage I'll turn to before we wrap up. 1 Corinthians 9. At his approach, what he strove to do. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 19. Paul says, for though I am free from all men, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to Jews, I became as a Jew that I might win Jews to those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law to those who are without law as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. He didn't sin that I might win those who are without law to the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. He strove to do that. He strove to identify with everybody. We get caught up in this kind of party spirit, Republican, uh, Democrat, you know, communist, all the rest. Then we lose the ability to recognize people in God's image in all those places. And we lose the ability to reach even them with the gospel of truth and life. So what do we do? We don't jump into politics. Uh, we don't run for office. Uh, We let the dead bury their dead, if you will. Rather, we focus on seeking God, trusting God, and then remembering that we are vessels for carrying his message, not our own, nor the message of any other.